Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Hope you're hanging in there as the global pandemic ensues. AMFT is with you. Podcast, we are in our second season, coming to you every two weeks. If Whether you're a loyal listener or you're just checking us out for the first time today, we have a great show in store for you. Those listeners know that my favorite segment on the show is the Pioneer Series, where we go behind the person, behind the model developer, uh, to dig deeper, to see uh, well, how they got into the field and what makes them still vital years into their career. And today we are talking to the great Froma Walsh. Froma Walsh is the uh, co-director and co-founder of the Chicago Center for Family Health and is a professor emeritus at the School of Social Service and Administration and Department of Psychiatry, the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and AAMFT-approved supervisor. Froma is an internationally respected leader in the field of MFT, the foremost authority on family resilience. She developed a resilience-oriented community-based practice approach to strengthen families in crisis, those with major trauma and those experiencing loss. In disruptive transitions, things like separation, divorce, and facing the challenges of persistent multi-stress conditions, illness, disability, economic hardship. Her research-informed family resilience framework is widely applied in intervention and prevention efforts, and her approach addresses developmental, systemic, cultural, and spiritual influences in suffering, healing, and resilience. She's a frequent speaker at AAMFT events, and I couldn't be more happy to have her on the show today. Some great stories that she's never told before, and then We are going to come back and tell you more about what AMFT is doing uh, for you to support you, the systemic therapist out there during the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, I am pleased to be joined here on the AAMFT podcast. She really only needs one name, Froma. That is the Froma Walsh Family Therapy Pioneer. And as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast... My One of my favorite parts of the show is interviewing pioneers, and Froma has really had a, a footprint in so many aspects of the field. When you think of names or words like uh, resilience and spirituality and integration, these are all things we'll touch on in the interview today and um, things Froma has really been associated with throughout the career. But the first question always, Froma, is how did you get started in marriage and family therapy or wanting to be a clinician to start with? What is your origin story? Ah, (laughs) Uh, well, uh, it could start many places in in the stream of life. 
Um, I was a psychology undergraduate major at Berkeley, um, but I thought I was going to be a neuroscientist, um, although we called it physiological psychology at that time, because I was fascinated with the brain. And interestingly, it was the pioneers uh, in neurophysiology at that time that found with rats that if um, you you put rats into enriched environments and then you looked at them after death, the ones in enriched environments had actually changed their brain structure and had much more enriched environmental experience, if we can think about that for rats. However, for graduate school, um, I was in the class that uh, had John F. Kennedy come and speak. And then with his assassination, I decided to go into the Peace Corps, which was really probably the most profound experience of my life. I worked in community development in Morocco and uh, worked with uh, in a women's center for young girls and uh, women who, uh, and Peace Corps had this crazy idea that by our presence as young American women, that the young women would want to become um, modern like us. And what we found, obviously, was that the families didn't consider us good, ex good examples at all. Here we were, single young American women without chaperones, uh, living together, uh, and they did not what, want What year are we in now? Just to oh, give us something in the timeline, yes, when you were sure. in the Peace Corps. Uh, that was 1964. So I was in the first group of women that was sent. Um, the We were called Morocco 3. And uh, we were really very much on our own at that time. And so we realized this was really culturally lacking in attunement and understanding of Moroccan culture and the values of families that, of course, the parents wanted their girls uh, to be marriageable. Uh, to follow in the traditions of family life. Uh, but I also discovered in that time just how powerful uh, their faith was in Islam and how in very poor families, uh, living in very difficult circumstances, it was really their family and their faith uh, that provided uh, nourishment for them through hard times. Uh, so the second year I worked uh, for the Ministry of uh, Youth and worked with um, uh, youth that had been arrested and in uh, centers for um, uh, what was, they didn't use the word delinquent uh, youth at that time. And mostly they were children from very poor families who had uh, really no chances in life. Uh, and for young girls and their mothers often were cast out from their families. Uh, really living uh, hand to mouth. So it was really an education for me that when I came back to this country, um, really seeing my country through outsider eyes and to appreciate uh, how important it was to, to think about family and to think about uh, larger social context. So I was, I think, very naturally drawn to family therapy when I started my training in social work. And uh, can I tell you about that? Oh, 
Sure. Let me ask you. It's such an amazing, like, I can't think of any place more progressive than Berkeley in the 60s and in such a culture shift to go to Morocco and to be among, I didn't realize this, a, just a pioneer, not only in our field, but also in the Peace Corps, this Morocco 3. Did you have a, a choice of where you were going at that time? And did you really, what type of preparation did you do to be in a different culture, the kind of immersion experience like you had in the Peace Corps? Oh, well, that's hilarious. But um, to tell you that, I did uh, apply for community development because that was my interest. And uh, they sent us, our group, to uh, University of Utah up in the hills above Salt Lake City. And uh, because nobody knew about the Peace Corps uh, at that time or knew about Morocco, actually a lot of people thought that we were being sent to Monaco. And uh, they would... <laughs> a big difference. Yeah, and they said, uh, oh, give our regards to Grace Kelly and the Prince. And, uh, yeah, that would have been quite an assignment. Um, But when we got to Utah, they said, well, you're going to these women's centers, so you're going to be teaching home ec, um, either uh, cooking and sewing. So we don't know anything about Morocco, we're sorry to say, so we'll tell you what we do here in Utah. So they taught us how to can and pickle. Um, and uh, which was totally inappropriate for Morocco because it's a, uh, the, the country is very uh, fertile, except for the very southern region on the desert. So it's much more like California with fresh fruits and vegetables year round. Uh, you would never need to pickle or can. And uh, so it was uh, one of those experiences that taught us a lot about faulty assumptions about other people in other parts of the world. Uh, And I think my experience in Morocco just uh, made me want to know more about uh, the world and that working internationally has always been uh, very close to my heart. The Morocco Three, are you still in touch with the other women? Oh, yes. Uh, We get together uh, two, at least twice a year. Um, There's a group of us, uh, we've had reunions, but we're very close. And it's a very interesting group of women. Um, I remember once uh, there was a, a film made and they asked my daughter, you know, what do you think of, you know, that your mother and, and how the Peace Corps would have, you know, made her the person she was. And my daughter said, well, she must have been an interesting person to have gone into the Peace Corps in the first place. And I thought, oh, that's my daughter. That's <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you were telling us so you had this amazing formative experience in Morocco that taught you about you know a different culture and and a way to adapt and accommodate. And then how did you first discover systemic language and these pioneers of family therapy? As right around this time, you know, also coincides with the origin of our great profession. That's right. Um, so I was very fortunate. I um, uh, by sometimes decisions in life, and I'm really a a developmental psychologist as well. So I am very interested in how there are these turning points in life uh, that sometimes are just serendipitous, uh, sometimes just good luck. And uh, my boyfriend at the time said to me, uh, gee, you would be a really good social worker. I have a friend uh, who's going to be at the party on Saturday night who went to Smith. She'll tell you all about it. And uh, I met her and she said, oh, yeah, you would love it. At that time, it was psychiatric social work and it was really doing clinical work. And so she said, well, the deadline is this week. Why don't you drive up there? I did. 
I was accepted. I didn't know anything about it. And I found out it was psychoanalytic. And uh, that just completely um, went against every bone in my body. I just was strength-based always. And, uh, but I was fortunate to be placed in New Haven at, uh, in the Department of Psychiatry in this uh, experimental uh, uh, inpatient unit called T1. And my first supervisor was Carol Anderson, uh, who, who became my lifelong dear friend and colleague. And uh, I was also blessed that um, the other student at that time was Monica McGoldrick. So uh, we just, uh, you know, we, we became kindred spirits immediately. Uh, we went to lunch, sat down, talked about uh, our interest in, and uh, noticing issues of loss in the cases uh, that we were working with. And Monica had had a, a boyfriend that died right at that time. And my mother was critically ill right at that time. So that also became a foundational experience in our interest in following uh, systemically, developing a systemic model for working with loss and seeing how it spreads through families. Yeah, but the field at this time was very psychoanalytic uh, based, especially a program like Smith and a social work program. So you all, a series of kindred spirits just kind of uh, started to uh, kind of inductively know how to work with families based on your clinical experience in that unit. Well, luckily, the unit was um, a milieu therapy unit uh, based on an uh, English model that combined individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy, and multifamily groups. This was in 1968. And the very first day that I arrived on the unit, not only did I see my first family, supervised by Carol, um, but I went to my first multifamily group meeting where there were about 35 people in the room. And I couldn't tell who were the therapists, uh, you know, who were the social workers and who were the families and who were the patients. So uh, it was, it was, it was a, a great experience. And it was we used to talk about flying by the seat of your pants when you worked with a family, um, but we had excellent supervision at that time uh, uh, from Nia Norton, who worked with uh, Theodore Litz, who was one of the foundational people in psychiatry working with schizophrenia. Um, and uh, I think it was, it just seemed natural to me, but my experience was on T1, that the families went to the group meetings and it was standard. So you weren't selecting out certain families because they're more disturbed and you need family therapy, which was a terrible framing. But rather, this is the way we work. We involve families at the beginning. We help orient you. We recognize the discharge from the hospital is going to be stressful. And so we want to support you and the patient through that period of time afterwards. So it was very non-judgmental, and it's very natural that Carol then developed uh, psychoeducation, family psychoeducation, which was really based on those principles of family support, family education, and not pathologizing the family. So when we think of the the history of family therapy. Uh, and we think of major mental illness, schizophrenia is tied highly to it. And you mentioned Theodore Lids, Teddy Lids, and this idea of the family. Uh, in many cases, the concept of the schizophrenogenic mother, uh, fam family communication causing 
major mental illness. At the time, I mean, did you believe that in your clinical experience? How did you, uh, someone, you know, that is known as a feminist, that is known, again, for their diversity, how did you deal with that? Um, and in addition to Monica and Carol, which are amazing people to learn from and collaborate with, who, who did you also look to as role models early in the field? Well, uh, let me just say uh, two things. One is that uh, I think throughout my career, I've learned the most from the families I've worked with. More than, you know, I've had mentors that have been fabulous, but it's really listening to families and learning from them that has helped me to grow as a clinician. So in that experience with families, it was so interesting that the families themselves lobbied to go from one multifamily group a week to have a have two, have another one a second time in the week because it was so helpful to them. And when we saw patients getting better and families being supported and helping with stress in the family, that really became a temp- the template for me. The second year I went for my placement to um, Yale Child Study Center, which was the traditional place with psychoanalytic practice. And I was told only to see the mother and that we couldn't have joint sessions with the therapist and the child because that would interfere with the transference to the patient. And uh, why bother seeing the fathers? Because it was really the early mother-child attachment that made all the difference. So I just found after my first year experience that it just wasn't, it wasn't right. <laughs> and I was drawn to family therapy. My first experience uh, with a, a, a national figure in the field was Virginia Satir going to New York uh, to an ortho meeting and having Virginia Satir do a three-day workshop uh, was life-changing for me. And I just thought, it's so refreshing. She is so uh, caring and respectful of families as well as the the person identified as the patient. I just knew family therapy was a home for me. In interviewing all these model developers on the podcast, it's like, yes, their, 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 their model came from their direct experience with families in the room. And it also was influenced by their family of origin. Can you tell us a little, obviously you were brave and you were had no fear. You'd go to Morocco, <laughs> you went to Berkeley. I am curious about how you were raised. Uh, you were born in Wisconsin, right? So how, how, tell us a little bit about your family of origin and what that was like growing up and what you took from your parents and your family into your work. Okay, well, um, can I can I weave it backwards? Let me go. Let me follow myself. From New Haven, I went to Chicago and was hired uh, to be the family studies coordinator in an NIMH schizophrenia research program. Uh, so for six years, I was working in the research project and doing family therapy and treat and teaching family therapy, uh, and. Uh, I was very concerned that uh, we didn't know anything. We were making a lot of assumptions, like that crazy assumption that it's a schizophrenogenic mother that causes schizophrenia. This was a psychoanalytic setting I was working in. And so I said, we need to see normal families in the community. Uh, Because how do we know when we see distressed families that it isn't that they've been struggling with a young adult who's had 
serious difficulties for many years, uh, we don't, you know, it's faulty to assume that it's the family that caused it. So when I wanted to see normal families, my colleagues said, uh, why bother? You know, all families are more or less dysfunctional. And there was just this pejorative use of diagnostic criteria to label every family as dysfunctional in one way or another. And, uh, and it was, I, I started to think you, you wouldn't even recognize strengths in a family if you saw them, they'd all be interpreted as deficits. So this kind of reinforced my desire to go back and get a PhD in psychology and human development at the University of Chicago and to study normal families, uh, which meant they weren't clinical no patient, there was no uh, uh, identified patient in the families. They were just everyday families. And that's how I first came to do the edited book, Normal Family Processes, to really expand for clinicians uh, our way of not, uh, our way of understanding how ordinary families cope uh, when under stress. And um, that, that takes me to my own family, if you want to hear a little bit about that. Oh, I'd love to hear. Yes. On the show, we always want to know the family of origin story and how that influenced your work uh, professionally and, and certainly personally. So please weave that in. My, As I said, my mother, uh, I unfortunately lost my mother when I was in my training in my late 20s. And uh, I decided a few years after that to go into therapy uh, to, you know, kind of to, I guess, attend to my grief and to understand better my relationship. But because the therapist was psychodynamic, the longer I was in therapy, um, it seemed like the worse my family got. And uh, I just, I, that catapulted me to move over to Northwestern to the Family Institute, uh, where I was then teaching family therapy. And I was working with um, um, colleagues who were developing family therapy at that time. And I realized I needed to do more work in my own family of origin. Um, I grew up in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, which was a factory town. I grew up in um, the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, and my dad um, uh, really struggled uh, to make a living. Uh, we had a very small gas station uh, we were homeless for a period of time when the apartment building we lived in uh, was destroyed in a fire. Um, so it was really a very hard find in terms of our economic struggles. But I always felt, I never felt like I had a bad childhood because my parents were very good at buffering it for me. My mother was um, a piano, the piano teacher in town. She had a music studio. Um, I had my dog Rusty after school when my mother was out teaching piano lessons. So that, you know, got me interested later on in, in understanding human animal bonds because she was like a big si sibling to me who uh, did homework with me. Um, but um, what I wanted to say was I always, uh, growing up in a working class community, um, I always felt like I didn't really belong in like, oh, in upper uh, echelons, the people who had grown up in wealth. And, and uh, Monica, just this year, 
uh, asked me would I write about that uh, for the new third edition in Revisioning Family Therapy um, to talk about um, social class issues and the American dream and the disparities and how we how both social class as well as economic status uh, really uh, is an influence in our lives and in the clients that we work with and that we need to pay more attention to it. Um, but I went back and I did more family of origin work, uh, and it was partly feeling like here I am thinking, taking a strength-based model uh, in my teaching and in my practice, uh, and yet I think my own father can't change. And so this was after my mother had passed away and uh, having some issues with my dad that I decided I really needed to work on. And, um, and in doing that, learning more about my parents, learning more about my mother's background uh, and my dad's background, I wrote about that in my book, um, uh, In Strengthening Family Resilience, in the last chapter, uh, and really coming to see how my dad had had a childhood disability that no one talked about, uh, how in the Depression, uh, you know, the struggles that he had financially uh, really, you know, were, were very upsetting to him, how my mother, um, from her religious upbringing uh, as a Catholic, uh, how she lost her family connections, how my father growing up in a Jewish family uh, led her to uh, con convert, but yet to hold on to some of her Christian upbringing. Um, so all of this, I would say, led me to appreciate how my parents really had to deal with many adversities in their lives, how they uh, really were models of resilience that I hadn't appreciated earlier on until I learned their life story. Uh, I gave a presentation at AMFT, I guess it was three year, 2016, uh, where I told their story a little bit more, and I've written about it, so I won't say more here. But I think that um, we live in a culture that so readily uh, looks for deficiencies in parents that uh, it's really important for all of us as family therapists to learn more about our parents' lives the adversities they may have faced, uh, their struggles with that, the suffering that they endured, and how they may have done the best they could, and how there were really hidden models of resilience in our families if we only look for them. It's a, a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing. And it's also a good point for people listening to this podcast, therapists that are somehow stuck in their work. I don't care if you're a therapist in training or you've been in the field for some time, this need to go back and look at your own blocks or interface issues and sometimes understanding your family of origin more, in this case, your parents. It softens them. It lets you see that they did the best they could to what they had. And it was obviously profoundly influential in your work, not only in the strengths-based model, but, but tapping into resilience. Your mother had passed away. What did your dad in later life think of this work, and especially you including him in one of your most influential publications, which is Strengthening Family Resilience, as you mentioned, uh, now, now on its third edition. Yeah. Um, well, uh, actually, another thing that I believe in uh, that's a core value to me when I, I'm not, I don't 
Um, I, I have trouble with categories. I always had trouble with multiple choice uh, questionnaires. And uh, are you in this box or that box? Because my own family and cultural background, my whole social location is multifaceted. And sometimes I feel more in one place than another. And at other times I feel marginal everywhere. Um, and I think uh, what my fam my own working um, with coaching, with Monica's help. I also consulted with Murray Bowen. I'm not a Bowenite, again, because I don't locate myself within a particular, I'm integrative in my practice. But they really helped me to see, to expand my perspective. Uh, and I came closer to my dad, and we had many good years before he passed away. Uh, he never really understood what I did because you know, he came out of much more of a, of, of a working class background. Uh, the last several years of his life, he worked at Kmart in Southern California, and he said it was the best job he ever had. He had health insurance. He had stability. He worked until he was 70. And then this man who, as a child, was considered a crippled child, did not have a normal life as a child, couldn't start school till he was 11, uh, faced ridicule and everything else. What did he do in his later life? He volunteered for the Shriners Hospital for, for Children, which had been called Hospital for Crippled Children. I mean, here's this, that's, this is a beautiful example of not only his resilience, but of his rising above his own pain and suffering to make a difference, to do something that brought joy into children's lives and helped make them better. And it's just like, he's, he didn't know that I wrote about him in later life as after he passed away. Uh, I know I would have his blessing. I'm not sure he'd, he'd be embarrassed by it, but uh, at, when he passed away, I first kept like this little transistor uh, radio to remember him by because, you know, he was kind of broken down and he had a lot of kinks in him. It's a good and metaphor. No, but when I later opened up his suitcase, he had all these awards for all of the volunteer work he had done. And I, I put away that broken, you know, the broken transistor radio and I put up his awards because, you know, I really was inspired by him and I really, I really came to honor him. Yeah, it's a beautiful story in, in the book. If, if if people have not read it, it's a staple in many MFT training programs. But if you haven't read Strengthening Family Resilience, that, that chapter that Froma speaks about is, is a beautiful tribute to her dad and her family of origin. So, so much of your, so I love talking to you, so much of your, clearly what you're passionate about is reflected in your life experiences. Uh, we could do a whole podcast just on family <laughs> res resilience. Also, one of the things you're known for, which, uh, as you said, an integrationist is integrating spirituality into family therapy, which I think is one of your amazing contributions to the field. Tell me how you got to that point. Well, um, funny thing that even though my mother did her best to um, make sure I went to Sunday school and was confirmed uh, in Judaism because she married into a Jewish family and uh, really, you know, she was, she was always more deeply spiritual and ecumenical. Um, she was not only a pianist, but an organist and used to be invited to play at all the Christian churches in town. And I would go with her. And I always thought that they all had something really valuable and deep. 
Um, and then going to Morocco uh, and having the experience of Islam, I just came through it thinking that these are all uh, really uh, pathways to wisdom and to living with a moral compass and an ethical regard for, for life. So I think I didn't think religion was important to me, uh, but I thought that we needed to broaden our way of thinking systemically beyond biopsychosocial to think of spirituality as another dimension of human experience. And uh, people like Lorraine Wright, my wonderful colleague, uh, was writing about that and talking about how suffering invites us into that spiritual domain, no matter how we practice it or don't practice it. Uh, when I taught in Australia, they said, oh, well, you don't have to talk about spirituality because, you know, we're not spiritual here. And I said, well, well, how do you talk about meaning and compassion and fulfillment? She says, oh, that's nourishment. And I think, you know, that's how I came to think about this and wanted to bring that larger um, way of thinking about it that, that can be found either within religion or outside religion through nature or uh, through social action, through art and other, other ways. So that's really how I, you know, how I wanted to broaden. And I was fortunate when I did the, uh, I, and I think I've always been interested in uh, bringing into our work um, maybe aspects that have been either on the margin or invisible or hidden. And, uh, and so there were, there were many people at that time who were just starting to think about how can we bring religion and spirituality into our work. So I edited the book, uh, Spiritual Resources in Family Therapy, which is a little treasure trove. There are some wonderful uh, pieces in there by, by many uh, leading family therapists. Yeah, it's wonderful. It holds it holds up well. And at the time when you wrote this, again, it used to be or edited this. It used to be in the field. Yes, if you brought up, you know, people would come to MFTs because they didn't want uh, any type of spiritual advice. They wanted a, a lay professional. If, if they wanted a spiritual religious counsel, they go to their pastor or they they'd go to some um, more faith-based therapy. Exactly. So, so now, though, as we know, and as, as you know, I study common factors, and if somebody has whether it's housed within the four walls of a church and organized religion or internal spiritual beliefs, those are huge strengths. And those are things tied into hope, which is a powerful, powerful, the difference that makes a difference sometimes in therapy. You knew that all all along, but the field didn't. How were, how were you received initially when you wanted to expand (laughs) the, the biopsychosocial to the biopsychosocial spiritual? Um, no, it was more, uh, I was an academic in those years. I was a, a tenured university professor at, uh, in, at uh, University of Chicago. And when I uh, started to, when I did the book and started to write on it, my colleagues said, well, it's a good thing you have tenure. Because still, that wasn't, it was seen as marginal to the mental health field and to scholarly pursuits. You couldn't measure it. It wasn't, you know, and then we came to see how indeed um, through the work of Koenig and many others uh, that they they do have markers for how uh, prayer, how meditation, 
uh, does make a difference in, in, in our brains, in our physiological functioning, as well as in our psychology. So over time, I think that's become, you know, that we're not resisting that anymore. How do you think we've done as a field as far as integrating spirituality into our training, the way we prepare future family therapists? Do you think we've come a long way or do you think we still have room to grow in that way? Um, Well, two things. One, I think for AAMFT, it's returning to its roots because it, from the very beginning, uh, the family counselors uh, in AAMFT often had a dual degree and valued uh, uh, bringing that dimension into their work. So I, I think that's been uh, only, we're, we're getting back in touch. I guess I would say, um, you know, over the last, in recent decades, uh, we already always, that as a field, we pushed away from pathologizing and demonizing um, and, uh, and really being, strength-based, that that's a core value for family therapists, and looking more contextually into social context, into culture, into uh, faith beliefs and practices, um, and into the lived experience of our clients. And I think uh, all of the approaches today uh, are really, you know, at at their core, uh, um, collaborative, and uh, wanting and not taking a one down, a one up, one down position that we're experts that we know uh, about families and what they should do in their lives and diagnosing them, but really um, working collaboratively. So I think I think this is very much uh, uh, knit into uh, everything that we uh, are trained in and, and are trying to do our best at. Agreed. If, if you set it up the right way, it's built into uh, what we believe uh, as, you know, relational healers and marriage and family therapists. You mentioned Chicago as your home base and it's a place that's very near and dear to my heart. And obviously, uh, Chicago, I think sometimes, um, I mean, it's this, it's a great stronghold for psychoanalysis, very different than the systemic world that our listeners are living in, but also for integration and for family therapy. You mentioned the Family Institute, which is where I have my roots as well. Is uh, I imagine you were studying there initially with Chuck and Jeanette Kramer that probably don't get written enough about in the MFT history books. But then you went on to take that and to start your own uh, Chicago Center for Family Health, uh, which is uh, an amazing place and clearly something that has been near and dear to your heart. And that's also your the, the origin, I believe, of your both pr- professional and personal collaboration with John Rollins. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I'm sure I love, our listeners would love to hear uh, how that collaboration started and how you balance both the personal and professional in that relationship. Um, well, John, uh, John and I are a remarriage couple. Um, uh, we've been raising our daughter, Claire, who is now... Um, we're very proud of. So let me say that first so I don't lose that. Um, she uh, decided she would go into international humanitarian work, and she works in the Middle East uh, as in mental health and psychosocial advising. Uh, so we're very proud of the work that, that she's doing um, when they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, so John uh, came to Chicago in 1990, and uh, we founded Chicago Center for Family Health as a, uh, an independent nonprofit affiliate of the University of Chicago uh, since I was there full time. Uh, and we set it up 
uh, really more as a collective, a network of um, mid-level family therapists who were all doing strength-based work. Uh, so uh, Jane Combs and Jill Friedman, Mary Jo Barrett, uh, Michelle Shankman, Mona Fishbane, um, many of the people who uh, uh, work in very different ways, but all share this the, the core values of strength-based collaborative practice and a very strong commitment to social justice and working with uh, families that are underserved. So those are really the, the values that we share, even though not all the therapists work in the same way. So we did training programs for many years, a uh, two-year advanced uh, certificate program um, in family therapy and John's specialty in um, collaborative family health care. Uh, and uh, over the years, um, things have, the field has changed and uh, we've now been there for 27, 28 years. We, uh, Increasingly, we're doing community-based projects where we would be contacted to use a resilience-oriented model uh, for working with populations that were uh, experiencing some type of adversity. John was doing projects uh, with cancer, cystic fibrosis. Uh, he did uh, uh, couples groups. Uh, and so it was doing training and capacity building. For instance, couples groups called resilient partners when couples were uh, dealing with um, uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, I did uh, projects with loss and then more in the community. I've been a consultant many years uh, in New Orleans to Tulane program. Uh, we did, uh, I think we, I wrote about it in our book in the family process article, but increasingly we did worked with uh, refugees who came to Chicago and weren't going for mental health care because uh, they did not want to get diagnosed uh, with a mental illness with PTSD and uh, the DSM uh, uh, diagnosis. And so we were asked to set up family-based, resilience-oriented um, uh, experiences that would be healing and therapeutic for them in the community. So we did that with Bosnian refugees, then with the, the following year with Kosovar refugees, and then John led the project uh, with AFTA uh, therapists uh, in Kosovo over the next five years, uh, developing resilience-oriented family and community approaches to uh, recovery in that war-torn region. So there have been many different projects that we've done in the community uh, that really take resilience as an orientation to practice with certain principles that are shared in collaborative um, approaches to family therapy, narrative therapy today, uh, and are applying them in different uh, different situations of adversity. Yeah, I love listening to that story because it's taking what we think of family therapy as this very micro thing within the family system and what you and your collaborations with John have done has taken this in a, in a more macro family therapy into uh you know, internationally into different communities, into larger systems. It really, uh, you know, is a beautiful way to to see what we think of goes on in a therapy room, take it to a community level, which I'm, I'm sure was by design. Talk about your, uh, how you balance the personal and professional being married to someone uh, who is so uh, integral to your professional identity. Oh, well, 
it works pretty well, actually, um, uh, because we each have our areas. I always joke about, um, uh, I w- in my family, I was brought up never to think about or talk about anything medical or inside the body. So I leave that all up to John, and we joke about it. My area in the work that we do collaboratively is around end of life and uh, uh, complicated and traumatic bereavement. So, you know, he he works with illness and disability, and I work with loss. And uh, that's the way we, when we, we work together. Um, and uh, I'm actually uh, kind of going back to my roots in that. Uh, if you if you were to look at my family genogram, you would see that there are many traumatic losses uh, throughout the family, and uh, I, that's always been a, a calling for me in my clinical work, even before I got into resilience. So now I'm uh, actually working on a new book for Guilford Press uh, on uh, uh, healing and resilience from traumatic and complicated loss. Uh, This kind of builds on uh, an edited book Monica and I did uh, way back a long time ago called uh, Living Beyond Loss. And I decided at this point, rather than do another edited book, I would just draw on uh, my clinical experience and developments in the field of bereavement. I do a lot of presentations uh, at workshops on loss, and it just uh, is something close to my heart. So that's what I'm working on right now. Wonderful. Uh, Do you think... Also, when you think of training therapists, which you've you know spent a career doing as well, I feel like we need to do a better job in the field of orienting people how to deal with loss. You know, people think of that as a, a niche field, grief and loss counseling. But if, as a as a relational therapist, as an MFT, that is something we need to come equipped with in our toolkit, so to speak, how to deal with. Do you, what do you think we need to do to prepare therapists to deal with? individuals and systems better with dealing with grief and loss. Thank you. Absolutely. I think, uh, again, that's another hidden dimension of our work that we often don't ask about it. Um, I would say, you know, one of, I know things you wanted me to talk about is some of the challenges in our field. And I think there are two. One is that we're living in a larger social context in the United States, particularly, um, that's still individualistic and that the therapeutic approaches that get funding, the research that gets funding tends to be around individuals and and symptoms and pathology and DSM diagnoses, and that's what gets reimbursed. And so it's very challenging to keep a family systems orientation. Um, And I think the important thing uh, is that it isn't, just about who's in the room, but it's really the, it's the template, it's the paradigm that we carry in our heads when we're working with an individual, uh, that they're, you know, that they're part of a system and we need to ask about that. We need to pay attention, not just to what's happening here and now, because I think that's another thing that's very American. We're very present focused and uh, we shouldn't, uh, when we are postmodern in thinking today and in using approaches such as solution-focused or narrative approaches that are very much about here and now and future-oriented, I'm, I'm very much working in that way, but we, we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater in, in meaning we shouldn't throw out understanding 
what they have experienced in the recent past and in the distant past that is bumping up against the struggles that they're facing right now, that we need to address that. And oftentimes that goes back to the work Monica and I first did, where we were noticing in that there was a, a, a really complicated, very painful losses that weren't dealt with in the family. And instead, somebody shows up with a depression or an acting out teenager. And we're focusing on the parenting of the acting out teenager and not noticing that the whole family is just uh, reverberating from a very painful death in the family. Uh, Working in Chicago and teaching uh, uh, therapists uh, for 35 years doing supervision. Um, they're out on the front lines in a city that is has had so much painful loss through violent deaths, uh, through um, gun violence, through gangs and community violence issues. And everyone is a tragedy for the family. And I think therapists need to, uh, who are working whether we, we can't just pay attention to the symptom that's coming in the room. We need to know about what's going on in their lives that is impacting the whole family. And maybe one of the members is having the most difficulty at the moment. And really, uh, and loss is, is really uh, one that we, ought, we don't, we need to pay more attention to. So well said, agreed. Now, I, I'd be remiss, and some listeners will get mad at me if I don't ask you about something you also referenced earlier, your interest in human and animal bonds, because I think this is Thank something we, we also don't talk enough about. And I know when I come home, I mean, I love my wife and kids, but sometimes when they've had enough of me, my two uh, Shih Tzus, Stanley and Ruby, will always have have time for me. They are my uh, uh, help me your self-soothe go-to. and relax. They are my go-to. So please talk to us about that, because of all your, I mean, that is another thing that you're passionate about that never gets talked about really with sure. an MFT as far as, so please tell us sure. about that. Yeah. Uh, and this is where Evan, Ember Black, when she was editor of Family Process, really urged me uh, to write about this because she knew about my passion and interest. And um, I I wrote two articles. uh, It was a special section in Family Process in 2007 on the human-animal bond, looking at it as um, relational resources and all the programs now that use Um, therapy animals uh, in so many different settings and how powerful they are, how powerful uh, equine-assisted therapy is with, uh, particularly with uh, young people who have uh, experienced abuse in their families of origin and find that they can bond with an animal uh, much more easily than they can with other humans that they don't really trust. how this is used with uh, prisoners in prisons uh, for you know to train little puppies uh, to become service animals and in the in the process it uh, is transformative for the prisoners in uh, beginning to to uh, uh, access these uh, very powerful emotions, caring emotions, um, and in in therapy as well. Uh, so I really. Um, uh, think that this is a resource that uh, we need to think about uh, asking people uh, when we ask about who's in your family uh, to also include those uh, companion animals, particularly someone who lives alone or a couple that's decided they're going to raise a dog before they try to raise a baby. Um, 
and uh, for elderly, for people with disabilities or injuries, the importance of that bond uh, and how pets play a role in family dynamics, just like children do. So, uh, and how we can use uh, increasingly, our dog Shasta has been a therapy dog for us uh, in our clinical sessions, uh, how, that, uh, how that really helps people to open up uh, express their emotions, uh, feel uh, cared about. Uh, it's really a very powerful untapped experience that uh, uh, you know that I hope becomes more of a resource in therapy. Uh, yes, I can tell you from personal experience as somebody that has these. No, they're two years old now, uh, sibling <laughs> puppies, and I have started. I've gotten them well trained, and they are lovely. Just bringing them into the room. Uh, it takes the tension out of the air. It takes anxious people, whether they are anxious individually or about their relationship. It is a, a powerful therapeutic tool. So, you know, I'm so glad. And it's clearly something you're passionate about. And it's amazing talking to this hour. It's like you've done so much, but your your passion is still there, which is another common factor among these model developers. They are as equally, I could talk to them now, and they're equally <laughs> as passionate about the field and their work as they were at the very beginning. So two questions and they're, they're uh-huh. even, uh, they're sometimes difficult for people on this question on the show to answer because they're not done yet. They still have a lot more to do. So they're, right. they're kind of two sides of the coin. What, what is the next chapter for you look like professionally? And then how do you want to be remembered, uh, within the field oh of marriage and family therapy? <laughs> uh, well, um, I enjoy, I, so I retired from my academic position, um, but I haven't retired from my passion for my career and for the field. And I think I'm... Uh, or, or from writing. I, well, that's it. So I work from my home office primarily. I enjoy doing international consultations. I like to learn about uh, and support um training and research and uh, practice initiatives all over the world, uh, people that are wanting to apply uh, a family resilience orientation. Uh, and I want to support that. So I, I respond to people. I travel. Uh, I like to learn from what they're doing, always with an idea that this is not about there's one model that fits all. Um, that there's some ideal way to have resilience or be a family. Uh, always that um, qualitative research is important to understand meaning making in families of how they are dealing with their their difficult experience, um, and of always having to adapt uh, both our concepts and our methods. Uh, in each culture, in each social context, uh, in different family constellations, uh, working with LGBTQ um, uh, clients and their families, you know, what makes sense, what works well with them. And uh, really that there are so many ways working with low income uh, families of color and the external challenges they face. So I just I'm very happy to see that so many people worldwide are wanting to take this resilience orientation, apply it to families who are facing different different kinds of adversity, whether it's discrimination and stigma or it's poverty uh, or it's a death, uh, difficult life challenges in the family, whether it's, you know, 
war and conflict related. So I, I'm very interested in, in doing what I can to see the field move forward and take this strength-based approach. Uh, and of doing writing, I, I have several writing projects every year and I enjoy doing them. Um, so I'm pretty busy. Yeah, you are certainly a great ambassador for our profession in the field of marriage and family therapy. And I can't thank you enough for this hour uh, and your insight and your stories. Anything else you want to kind of plug or uh, shine some light on, feel free to do it now. <laughs> I think we've, we've talked about just about everything. And um, I guess uh, the main thing uh, from an integrative standpoint I think I, I value um, ideas and methods from many different models, and I encourage people to uh, continue to learn and be open uh, to different ways of working uh, and to listen to their families who will tell them what's helpful. Words to live by. Froma Walsh, thank you so much for being a part of the AAMFT podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. There you have it, another great interview in our Pioneer series. Thank you, Froma Walsh. And depending when you're listening to this today, uh, the podcast drops on May 22nd. That's a Friday. It's Froma Friday at the AAMFT because she is the latest in the At Home series. The At Home series is AMFT bringing you uh, the leaders, the standard bearers in our field uh, with their particular frame of reference and talking about how the global pandemic, COVID-19, is affecting you know, our lives, uh, the clients we work with, and our profession as systemic therapists. So um, this afternoon from 1 to 2 Eastern, depending when you're listening to this, uh, AMFT uh, is giving free uh, another member benefit uh, and CEUs involved too. Um, and the topic Froma is going to talk about today is Love, loss, and resilience in the time of corona. The isolating constraints of social distancing heighten awareness. The love and connection are essential to thrive. We're all in this together and our resilience is relationally nourished. More than ever, couples and families are multi-stressed, struggling, and needing help in forging resilience. To grieve and adapt to the many losses, to strengthen vital bonds, and to tolerate these uncertain times. So she'll take her resilience framework and really build on uh, things she hit on today. If you don't catch it live, AMFT as another service to the members on their YouTube channel has been putting all the at-home series. So you can see, actually every single one of these people have been a guest on the podcast. You can go in the AMFT YouTube page and see in the archives over the last two months in the at-home series. Greats like Harry Aponte, David Snarch, Sue Johnson, Manage Danishpour great series another member benefit being part of the AAMFT please we'd love to hear from you drop us a line get a hold of the AMFT communications at aamft.org get a hold of me Dr. Eli at Dr. Eli Live that's the Twitter handle the Twitter handle on AMFT is at the AAMFT you want to send me an email i love hearing for that i've gotten a lot of comments lately and suggestions for future topic areas and guests on the podcast you can send me an email at info info at elikaram.com that's e-l-i-k-a-r-a-m 
We're all in this together. And until next time, my friends, stay systemic.